Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today, we're kicking off the new year of Pioneers and Pathfinders with a conversation with the delightful Joy Heath Rush. Joy has spent virtually her entire career supporting lawyers and has had a leading role in defining the value of allied professionals. It was a delight talking to Joy and listening to her journey and experiences because they resonated with me as I've watched other people engage in similar contributions. Her career path started at Sidley and Austin in document services, where her devotion to excellence and love of technology helped her move into a number of leadership roles. After stint at Latera, she's now CEO of ILTA and what she calls her dream job. Listen in to today's conversation to learn why she loves working with lawyers, how her role as CEO at ILTA is the culmination of all her professional experiences, how COVID has transformed the delivery of content, and the advice she gives to allied professionals who want the career longevity she's had. She's made an enormous contribution to the practice and is a delightful person to talk to. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi, Joy. How are you? Hey, I'm great, Steve. How are you doing? Happy holidays. Thank you. You too. You too. It's always a great to spend time with family, uh, particularly in these days when the prior few years it hasn't been quite as easy. Yes, indeed. And uh, I'm not sure when our listeners are hearing this, but we're recording it right after Thanksgiving. And uh, so we had more people in our house in two days than I think we've had in 18 months, including lots of pets. It was wonderful. (laughs) That's wonderful. Congratulations. It's uh, who knows what the future holds, but it's nice to at least have a glimpse of some normality now, isn't it? Yes, indeed it is. As long as we're sort of touching on the topic, how has the pandemic affected the work at ILTA? Well, I mean, it's been profound, really, for a couple of reasons. One, from a content perspective, it's not that the content we would have produced anyway wouldn't have been relevant during the pandemic, but there were whole new areas of content to be explored that were emergent. In fact, last year we did a series called There Are No Experts. (laughs) (laughs) Because so many of us were doing things that we were literally all inventing it. It's like we have to figure out a way to deal with mail delivery. You know, we have to figure out a way to deal with scanning and records and cutting checks and all kinds of things in addition to our technology stuff that was being challenged right and left. So we had a biweekly series where we just kind of say, okay, what are we going to talk about today? Oh, people are working on home printing. Let's talk about home printing. And what have we all learned and how can we help each other? So there were content, I would say, challenges. Because our content tends to be very well prepared and it's done over a series of several months. I mean, it's got... Excellent. Thank you very much. But in this case, the urgency, the timeliness was actually more important than how well prepared it was. Right. And so the ability to spin up things that were really timely on topics that we weren't expecting to have to talk about was kind of a fundamental change. And then for not just ILTA, but many associations, nonprofits were, I mean, many businesses obviously were hit hard by by COVID, but nonprofits tend to be highly dependent on in-person events, whether they be fundraisers or conferences or, or whatever. It's just part of the stream. And when those kind of went away, then on the business side, you're also trying to figure out, A, how to provide that service 
to those members who need the education, the sponsors who need the exposure, and to manage then, you know, the revenue at the same time. So there were challenges in the services we delivered and how we delivered them. And I'm just thrilled at the way our members, our business partners, our staff responded. And it just shows the underlying strength of the community, really. Absolutely. Moving to a virtual conference, put aside the technology challenges. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Because you lose the in-person connection. Yes. But you gain the ability to reach audiences you know, outside of the U.S. or whose location doesn't allow them to attend in person. Exactly right. There must be an interesting balance. I'm going to come to the hybrid nature of Ilticon here in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does that play out from a business stance from a non-for-profit? Because you got to weigh both sides. Yeah, is is that, and the hybrid is a whole different conversation, so I'm glad we're getting to that. But let's talk about kind of the pure digital conference. The ability to reach people that it's hard to reach before with content is wonderful. And to bring them in the community, it expands the conversation for everybody. It creates accessibility that is really hard to achieve in an in-person event. It also promotes reuse of the content in a constructive way. And then I think the other thing that really came to light and to life both during the digital events was the rich conversation. So that is during a live event, no one is going to turn to their neighbor and start having a conversation. They're just not going to do it. It's rude. right? So they're not they're not going to do that. But during a digital event, they'll engage in the chat window and they'll ask questions. And the way that I express it is that 201 level content becomes 301 level content really quickly because people are adding anecdotes talking about their experiences with certain technologies or processes and raising the level of the conversation. And so when we get to talk about hybrid, we'll talk about how we don't leave that behind. But I think the biggest challenge of the digital with lots of advantages, even in some cases, good revenue streams, because the digital events tend to be less expensive. And so sometimes people will invest more, send more people. So it's accessible to more people. It's a really tough situation for a sponsored event. I mean, there are lots of good platforms out there for exhibit halls and, you know, walking through and talking to sponsors. People don't do it. Now, they'll go and attend their session and then they'll go do some work and then they'll come back and attend their session or they'll go eat dinner and come back and attend a session. And so the advantages for sponsors, they really have to kind of change the way they interact with their customers. And you need to, as a company that provides opportunities for sponsors, come up with new and more creative ways for them to get their message to our members. And and for us, at least, because education is completely central to what we do, it's around education, master classes and ask the expert sessions and ways for our business partners to demonstrate their industry knowledge and technical expertise in an educational setting, much more so than kind of a walk through the exhibit hall and see what people are talking about kind of thing. So that pendulum will swing back, you know, certainly as we go back to more in-person things and hybrid things too. You know, I've had conversations with a number of law professors who were talking about the same dynamic. And I asked them what they missed most about teaching in a virtual environment. What they've almost uniformly said, it's that spontaneous interaction with students either before or after, sort of the water cooler moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the accidental encounter, right, in some ways. And it's hard to engineer that. I mean, you try to, and I think we've had some success at it, but it's only ever going to be 
modestly successful. And, you know, even in talking to Steve, probably in talking to your partners, you've had this. I've had I've had these conversations with partners at other law firms as well. They're learning those skills, too. I mean, it's when you're used to pitching on the golf course or pitching at lunch or pitching in an in-person meeting, it's a different skill set. It just is. And it is a skill set that everyone's trying to manage how to grease the rails of communication when you can't shake hands. Have you found generational differences among the ability people to modify and learn? That sense, because you've got members in ILTA from all across the spectrum, different. Oh, yes, we do. We absolutely do. Different backgrounds, different ages, different nationalities. You're truly an international organization. How have you seen your community adapt? And have you seen trend lines in that? Yeah, that's a great question. So certainly there are some differences like national culture and cultural identity, you know, where an in-person culture, for example, our UK members love in-person events maybe more than anybody. And for the people in central London, it's just so easy to navigate central London. You can get to an event in 10 minutes on the tube and get back and get back to work. There's a lot of drop-in type of things that happen, very spontaneous, in and out kinds of things all the time. They were very happy, since they couldn't have that, to have an easy way not to lose touch with the community. So even though culturally they're very in-person culture, I found that they adapted really quickly and were really appreciative of not losing that connection, you know, the connection that they had to people in the way to connect. Generationally, what I find is that the younger folks tend to be more comfortable with asynchronous communications. So whether it's audio or video, you know, the the kind of video conferencing I haven't seen be such an issue. It's just that our younger members seem to be much more comfortable with podcasts and recorded content and those kinds of things that they don't consume in real time than our older members. And, uh, you know, that that's a very broad generalization. But I think what where you're seeing the divide more is between introverts and extroverts. And our introverts have really, this has been a hard culture for them because they can't escape. You know, they can't hide. Even in a big room, if you're in a big conference room and there are 30 people in the meeting, if you can hide in the corner. When you're a head in a box and you're the same size as every other head in the box, it's really hard to hide. And I think that we haven't maybe across the world done as good a job as we could have to help our introverts adapt to this world of being constantly on TV. It is it is much harder to hide, mm-hmm. even if you want to or even if you have a legitimate reason to. You're sitting there going, oh, do I do I stop my video and have my name pop up and then I'm getting even more noticed? Yes, exactly. And it's gotten to the point where if I have a meeting that especially if it's only just me and one other person, I will ask, do you want to do video? Do you just want to do phones? Sometimes people are like, oh, my God, thank you. (laughs) Because it can be tiring. Yeah, it can. So you did uh, Ilticon in a hybrid fashion. Mm -hmm. How did you sort of think through the lessons learned from the virtual reality? Obviously, there's a health issue you got to take into account. It must have been a complicated set of calculations and data you were incorporating to figure out what to do and how to do it. And walk me through how you thought that through. There's no question that it was. And the first thing is that there were some things that were just so completely and utterly Steve out of our control that we were constantly in respond mode. 
not in plan and execute mode. It's, oh, the state of Nevada is doing this now. Okay. Oh, you know, MGM Entertainment now has this policy or the city of Las Vegas is no longer subject to the jurisdiction of the state of Nevada. Now they're making their own decisions and they're doing something different. And when you have statutory and regulatory requirements, you have no choices. So you start with that, (laughs) you know, as a baseline and work up from it. I think that some of the lessons were that one, doing a hybrid conference is not a 2x multiplier. It's a 3x multiplier. You're really doing three conferences. You're doing an in-person conference that has food and badges and all those things you have to deal with in an in-person event. You're doing a digital conference that has only people participating digitally and you have to get them registered and the speakers have to be able to be there. And then you have this hybrid thing where you have stuff that's happening both live and digitally at the same time. That's three conferences. So I think that we didn't necessarily realize going in that it really was a 3x multiplier. I think the second thing that we learned is that this issue of interactivity that I talked about with the digital conference, the participation in the chat, uh, sessions that had breakout components in the room, and we tried to bring people in remotely, present some unique challenges. Like the people in the room, I mean, they could attach to the Zoom and and the virtual conference, were much less likely to be participating in the online chat because it felt you know, they were there in person. They were engaged with whoever was speaking and on the stage. And so they were not necessarily getting all the benefit of that highly interactive component of it. On the other hand, when we tried to bring people in in the hybrid into like breakout sessions, yes, I would say it was reasonably successful, but certainly not the same as being there in person. So we tried very hard to look at what it is people were trying to accomplish, education and making connections and to accommodate that. But it wasn't necessarily as straightforward as you might think. And so there was unquestionably a learning. I mean, one of the interesting things, though, from a sponsor's perspective is that it was a smaller crowd in person, but every single person was a buyer and every conversation was a quality conversation. So there was also some learnings around the size of in-person events and what is kind of an optimal size, optimal size for education, optimal size for networking, and whether there's thinking that needs to be done about how that happens in the future, what it is that brings people together and in what numbers. This is an unfair question because life changes so quickly these days and who knows what surges are here and gone and, and whatever. But what did you learn from this hybrid conference that you'll apply to the next Dilticon? I'm really glad you asked that, actually, because there are things that I think we will never go back to, even when we can be fully in person as we expect to be. There are new ways of registering people, of issuing badges, of feeding people that have come up through the pandemic that I don't think none of us will ever go back to the way they were before. Some of the new methods are inherently more efficient, they're inherently less expensive, and they're inherently more sanitary. (laughs) Good, good factors all. Yeah. And so, I mean, think of all the changes. If you've been in a hotel in the last six months, registration has changed completely in the average, certainly large hotel chain. You know, we're not going to go back. These are changes that are there. We had an opportunity to re-engineer processes and implement technology at a time when utilization was low, which is a good time to make those kind of changes. And so they're now forever part of it. I think we also have learned that people like 
lots and lots of small gatherings in the context of a big gathering. So like one of the things that happened at Ilticon this year is a lot of our business partners did, you know, kind of smallish networking, you know, events in the evening. And so some people would go to one or two, but they had lots of choices and the business partners had lots of opportunity to reach lots of customers. You know, that that actually is not a bad model. We don't have to do some kind of big central thing, a dinner or an event or a reception or something every night. There's opportunities for people to network in other ways. And so I think that that was also a great learning of things that we'll do, you know, continue to do in the future. The big thing we have to figure out, I believe, is two things, really. One, this interactivity issue of how we keep that rich interaction about the content in a more in-person situation. And then I think the second one is how we provide some digital access to the in-person event without diluting the premier nature of the in-person event, if that makes sense. You you want the in-person event to be the best event it can be. If you're doing digital, you want it the best it could be. Do we do two? There are some choices we need to make about where on the continuum of hybrid is the future. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think we're all trying to figure it out. I suspect it's a matter of experimentation and keeping moving the slider one way or the other until you you do what's on balance the best you can do. That's exactly right. And I think the other thing is, I call it getting back to first principles, is you look at why you do something rather than what you've done. The purpose of this is to connect people with people with mutual interests or to deliver education. So what is the best way to do that? to achieve that end, not necessarily to replicate some process that you had in the past that was designed to do that. It's let's get back to solving what the real problem is. And that's an easy trap to fall into. It's like, oh, we did registration this way. Now we're going to do it this way. It's okay. Well, why did we have to do that? Well, we need a registration process for this and we want it to be easy for people. And you get back to that and kind of resolve that problem. That's an interesting way to sort of think about a lot of technology problems. Our experience has been too often people have jumped to a solution and they're ignoring the problem of what you're trying to solve for and how you can solve the problem more simply than just designing a piece of software for it. That's exactly right. And and I think what happens too often is when you presuppose the solution, then it gets over-engineered really fast. I can remember in my law firm days, we used to do a kind of customer satisfaction survey, if you will, you know, every year. And one of the questions was always what I called the wave a magic wand question. (laughs) If you could wave a magic wand and add technology to any process you do, that is automate it to make it easier, what would it be? And the last one of those we did during my time, 80% of the answers were things we already had and people didn't know. And it's either because they don't ask the question right, or you don't market it right, or there are too many solutions. I I can think of one story that came up during the pandemic, and I will take a minute to tell it, so I think you'll be interested in it, is one of our members was telling me that he had a request from a secretary for a scanner and an extra printer at home because of the way this assistant was doing bait stamping. She was still printing out. They still do bait stamping? Believe it or not, she was printing out the PDFs, printing the labels, sticking the labels on the pages of the printed document, scanning them and sending them back. But the thing is, 
She did it so efficiently, and the end result was achieved that nobody questioned the methodology she was using until she was asking for this whole setup at home. And then one of the IT people said, by the way, you know that in this application, you can press a button that says bait stamp PDF, right? And it'll just do it. And she had no idea. So for years, she had been using this very labor-intensive process simply because she didn't know and because the process hadn't broken. Nothing called attention to it. What a fascinating story. Isn't that a great story? I, to me, it is like, it, it's almost like you, you wish you had made it up, but it's better that it's true. But it's, it's perfect because it's just, it illustrates the point so perfectly. And this happens, I think, too many times. And we don't get back to what problem is it we're trying to solve. Another story I love about this is years ago, and this really dates it. I had a lawyer who called me and said, how do I turn my text white in WordPerfect? And I could have told her how to do it. Instead, my answer was, what are you trying to do? Why do you want your text to be white? And she said, well, I'm trying to redact my document electronically. I said, "Okay, good. Here's how we redact a document electronically. But if I hadn't asked that question, we wouldn't have gotten to what ultimately was the right solution. And I think, again, that is what happens a lot in technology. And so when you have organizations, and I know yours is one of these, who's very disciplined about developing requirements and really involving the end users in developing what is a good solution, that wish list, that magic wand, it makes a difference because you have the opportunity to ask the question of why is it important for you to do this? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? How does it either serve the client better, make us more efficient, you know, let us respond more timely, whatever it is, you can ask those questions. And, and that's critical as far as I'm concerned. It absolutely is critical and it allows you to get to a better solution set if you can get people to engage in that conversation. So let's let's back up a little bit because you didn't start going down the road of technology. You wanted to be a diplomat. You wanted to be in, in the foreign service. So you got your BS in foreign service from Georgetown. What caused you to go down a path that's led you now to running one of the most esteemed technology associations in the world? Well, um, I will answer that in a way that's very practical. I graduated college in 1981 and I needed a job. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that. (laughs) Um, It's funny how things happen. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and I was actually planning to go to graduate school at Northwestern. But I ended up in Chicago anyway, many years later. But it's just funny the way things are full circle. But my father had been in a bad accident while I was in college and uh, was not able to function as fully as he had before. And I'm an only child. And I decided that maybe running off either to graduate school or going off and serving in the consular service, just I could do that later. So in the meantime, I needed a job and I found a job in in an office that's very similar to what now would be something like Regis. You know, it's a shared services type of space. And there were tons of lawyers in this, usually small law firms or branch offices of larger firms that are in D.C., and lobbyists. And I did a little bit of everything in this office. And then a few months in, my boss was like, you're smart. I really want to train you in this word processing stuff. And I have to tell you, I was the most computer phobic person on the planet. (laughs) I had taken some programming classes in high school. I was like, this is not really for me. I really don't like technology. And so I did everything I could to not have to go to this class because I was convinced I was going to lose my job. 
And uh, finally, I just couldn't put it off anymore. And halfway through at lunchtime, I called my office. I was like, this is awesome. This is like the greatest thing I've ever done. (laughs) And um, I became kind of the legal document word processing guru at my office. And then I went to work for Sidley Austin. I started out as running second shift word processing, which is maybe, Steve, you remember this, when people had to actually send documents by Federal Express. Yes, I do remember that. You're bringing back so many memories. Yes, (laughs) I'm just showing my age is what I'm doing. But, you know, the second shift, we had to get FedEx deadline out. I loved the second shift word processing people because they were so critical because you had to meet the Federal Express deadline and you never got anything from the partner early enough to get the first shift. So you're always putting it on the second shift. Exactly right. And I loved my team. I had a fantastic team and, and I loved the pace. I loved working with the lawyers. And then as technology grew... So there was a guy in my office that was a computer expert. And I said, I want one of those PC things in here because this is the future. And so my counterpart in Chicago used to call me every morning at 830 her time and lay me out about allowing those things in my word processing department. (laughs) And I said, don't you get it? Like there won't be a word processing department if we don't figure this stuff out. This is the future. And then I became kind of the firm expert on word processing on computers. And then I just moved into IT and that started my whole career. But it all started because I graduated from college and needed a job. And when I was kind of forced to take a risk, I did. And I never looked back. And I think that that's a really good way of looking at things. You take opportunities and you try to turn them into something. And I just fell in love with technology. But I also fell in love with lawyers. Oh, I'm so sorry. I know. <laughs> it's, it's twisted. I know it's twisted. Um, but the thing is, I love the fact every lawyer I worked with at my firm, the standards are so high. The expectations, the pace. I like the fast pace of the work. I like the fact that excellence is what's expected. And to me, it was never a problem saying I didn't mess people's work up. You know, it's like, oh, so-and-so is really difficult. Well, just don't mess their work up and they won't be difficult. So let's start with that. Let's do the work right and you won't have any problems. And I always felt, Steve, that I put my diplomatic skills to good use (laughs) working with the partners in my firm. Oh, my goodness. You must have had to. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. I think that was not a wasted education. (laughs) But I used to also always say, I treat everybody like they're on the management committee, then I don't have any problems. That's a good rule of thumb, isn't it? Mm -hmm. This is going to be a difficult question to answer. I almost hesitate to ask it. But what are the two or three things you learned from, you were at Sidley for for a long time. Yes, I was. And then you moved into a a vendor role, the uh, Latera, five years, and then now at Ilta. What did you learn from that immersion of 28 years with lawyers that you apply now in your role at ILTA? Because you're still servicing the legal profession. Absolutely. So I think that one thing I learned is I understand the pressures that our members and business partners are under because I understand the pressures that are applied within law firms and the pressures that the partners put themselves under and put associates under and the clients put the whole firm under. So I think that I learned the lesson that everybody is under pressure. So if you're unfailingly kind, it's always going to make things better. So I try very hard to be unfailingly kind. 
I think the second thing is you learn to listen really well if you're good at your job, because you have to listen for that. Well, why do you want that text to be white? What is it we're trying to do here? What's the subtext to the story? What's the end game? A boss of mine at Latera, great guy, used to say, listen to what people want and then give them what they need. Oh, I love that. Isn't that fantastic? It's perfect. And that's part of it. You listen to what people are upset about, what their pain points are, what their wish list is. You put it in the context of your operating environment, and then you can usually come up with a pretty good solution. So that sense of really listening well is something I learned working in the law firm that I've taken with me everywhere. And then I think the third thing, and this was actually a lesson that took me a long time to learn, but it was helpful, is you have to create your own boundaries. No one's going to create them for you. And people say, oh, you can't say that to a lawyer. I remember one partner coming to me one day and saying, this particular project has to be done by four. That's when the client is leaving. And I said, it's not physically possible to get it done by then. I'm just saying, I'm going to do it myself. I'm the fastest person in the department. I can't get it done by that. But you have to. I said, well, I, I can't. So the lawyer sent the client in and I talked to the client. And the client like, yeah, if you can't do it by four, nobody can. I'll just change my flight. That was it. There you go. And the project was done well. It was done at the right level of quality. I think the very last thing, and this is kind of an opposite lesson, but hopefully it's helpful for some people that are listening, is not everything needs your A game. That's interesting for lawyers to learn, isn't it? Yeah. And lawyers are not good at that, Steve. That's something that is, as I said, it's kind of an anti-lesson. Sometimes your A game isn't needed. And if, if your B game is good enough, then you can play more games. Maybe you can get more things pushed through, but you have to learn that and apply it for yourself and figure out when your B game is good enough. Yeah, because sometimes good enough actually is good enough. It absolutely is. And we don't recognize that. Let me change the topic a little bit. I know that uh, ILTA puts out a tech survey every year. Oh, yeah. And you got your 2021 tech survey is out. Did you pull two or three trends from that tech survey? And I encourage everybody to go on ILTA's website and you can download it. It's You can download the executive summary for free. and It's got some great information in there. But what are the trends you're seeing in the tech world? Yeah, it was really interesting. There was a lot more interest in hardware this year than there's been in a while because people had to rethink a lot of their hardware decisions because of the pandemic. And they're now rethinking them going forward. So what about laptops? Do people really need two or three or four setups in various places? Do they need to have cameras in their offices? What about printing? And how do we do that? How do we secure? So all of these things around something we thought we'd done solve that. Right? We, we figured that out. We got that down pat all of a sudden was back up for consideration. I think the second thing is the incredible speed and market penetration of Microsoft Teams has been extraordinary. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And in fact, we have an event coming up at the end of March. You'll be hearing more about soon. It's a two-day Teams event. We're calling it Mastering Teams. It's like a series of master classes. But we're starting out, the first session is what I wished I'd known when I started, what I wished I'd known about Teams when I started that I know now. That was absolutely fascinating. The speed of cloud adoption in some organizations that had been extraordinarily cloud-averse that suddenly there were not choices. No, there were things you had to do. I can remember shortly before the pandemic began, I was at a gathering of law firm general counsel. That's a great crowd. That is a great crowd. 
they're risk guys and gals among risk guys and gals, you know, and they think deeply about it. I love talking to them. Anyway, we were talking about cloud aversion. And so I said, okay, let me ask you a question. How many of you use the cloud, you know, for some important function? Almost no hands went up. You know, they're all very large law firm. And I said, okay, how many of you use DocuSign? And every hand in the room went up. I said, you, you do understand that DocuSign's only cloud, right? <laughs> but they didn't. And it's not that they weren't doing a good job of what they They just, it was what was available to them. It's what the clients wanted to use. So they did it. But there were a lot of things that moved much more rapidly to the cloud. So the pandemic actually broke down a lot of the barriers and obstacles to cloud adoption, specifically in, you know, maybe niche application areas. And uh, that, to me, was also absolutely fascinating. The tech survey is fascinating. It's got some additional information in it that's really great that I encourage everybody to take a look at. And are the prior year's uh, tech surveys available online as well? They are. They absolutely are. And one of the things we're looking at now is how to create some trending reports that are in questions that tend to be more or less in common across the surveys. I mean, there are always new ones every year. You know, we know that. But looking at some things where the information really can be trended, particularly around cloud adoption versus on-premise adoption and how those numbers are starting to turn upside down is great. We're trying to figure out the best way to produce that trending information, but we think it can be very valuable. But yes, prior years are available. And if there's a year you want, you don't see, just let me know. I guarantee we've got it and we'll find a way to get it to you. Well, that's great. It's some wonderful information. And, and you guys do such a wonderful job of educating and informing this critical cohort of people that really are driving the practice forward. Thank you for that. And you know, we look forward to you continuing to do that. Joy, we're, at, we're out of time. I want to thank you for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. And uh, you brought back many memories to me of... <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope they were bad flashbacks. Let's just say maybe some some good memories, but uh, things that we did once upon a time. I'll go curl up in a corner in the fetal <laughs> position here in a little bit. <laughs> no problem. But I'll get past it. I'll get past it. I'll be there with you in spirit. But thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been great. And I look forward to when we can have a coffee and go over some old memories in person one of these days, not too distant future. I look forward to that, too. Thank you, Joy. Okay, take care now. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.